Good morning, church. Good morning. I want to say thank you for all of your uh, prayers and support this past week. So many of you have been telling me, Liam, you're in for such an adventure having a daughter. And I had no idea what to expect. And it is a very unusual time, but it is such a wonderful time um, to see uh, Reese come into this world. So I'm thank you for, thankful for all of your support in the midst of all of that. Church, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13 is where we're going to be today. Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. And I want to preach a message to you today called the, the fruit of the gospel, fruit of the gospel. Last week, we looked um, at Paul's life specifically in verses one through seven, and Paul told us how the story of the gospel had changed his life, that he had been given the grace of God to become a minister, and he was even suffering for the gospel. That's what he tells us in Ephesians 3, one, that he was a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. And we talked about how even though Paul was in some tough circumstances, his imprisonment, he uh, still had a focus on the gospel and how we need to have the correct mindset to live a life faithfully for Christ. And so we continue to kind of look at Paul's life a little bit in verses 8 through 13. Now, as we're studying through the book of Ephesians, the title of our series is that the gospel changes everything. And I want us to ask kind of an uncomfortable question as we begin this morning. What if it doesn't? We're saying that the gospel changes everything, but what if it doesn't? And I'm not saying that I believe that the gospel does not have the power to change everything in your life. But what if we claim to be people of the gospel, followers of Christ, and yet we are still the same old, same old? This is a horrible thing for the testimony of the church. And we see in this book there's a major theme. And what Paul is telling us is the power of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, should drastically, radically change our lives so that when the gospel does its work in us, there is none left of the old man. In Ephesians 4, we see Paul describe it this way. He says, we've got to take off the old man, and we've got to put on the new man. And if you kind of zoom out and look at all six chapters of Ephesians, this is a major theme. In Ephesians chapter 2, he told us that the old man was dead in his trespasses and sins, but that God made us alive, right? The old man is dead. The new man is alive. He told us in, later in chapter 2 that the old man or the old men were divided by culture. Do you all remember this? Divided um, as Jew and Gentile. But he says in verse 15 that Christ came to abolish in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. I see this theme throughout the book. Chapter 3, Paul has told us how the gospel made him a new man. Chapter 4, take off the old man, put on the new man. And then in chapter 6, we have the grand finale of this theme where Paul says, put on the armor of God. Right, The new man is to put on um, full maturity in Christ. And he tells us in chapter 5, we grow up into all things, which is um, to look like Christ, to be like Christ. We've got to put on the new man. Jesus taught this same idea, but he didn't use the image that, that Paul used. Jesus, like so, he did so often, he used an agricultural picture to talk about the evidence of our salvation, of an inner transformation. This is what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He said on the outside they look like new men, but on the inside they're still the same old sinful man. He says you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. I think so often we read that passage and we just kind of think that the application for that is, am I someone who bears good fruit, right? But he's also describing a reality, y'all, that until Jesus comes back, there will be people in churches and in our communities that will claim to be the new man, but they will still produce fruit as the old man. Someone who claims a gospel of peace and unity but they're argumentative and divisive. Someone who claims that the gospel is for all nations, but then they are racist. Someone who claims a gospel of forgiveness, and yet they exclude people because they're so bitter. And church, I don't want this to be us. I don't want this to be us. People who say, hey, something's different about us. The gospel has changed everything, but by the way we live, we're saying we're the same on the inside. This is an uncomfortable question to ask. Am I living out the new man? Am I taking off the old and putting on the new? Church, we have to be this way. We need the gospel to change everything about us. And maybe you're sitting here today, and it's kind of a miracle that you're still coming to church. Because some of us have been hurt by, by wolves in sheep's clothing. And when we think about this reality and this teaching of Paul and Jesus, we can understand why so many people are disenchanted with the church. Because they came to the fruit tree, all they got was chaff. They came to be vulnerable with sheep, but they got bit by a wolf. And church, we have got to be the new man And we see in this passage, y'all, Paul tells us really four things that the gospel produces in our lives, things that we can do, things that we recognize. Okay, the gospel changes us and so that we can live out the new man as he talks about his life and his ministry in verses 8 through 13. So will you read with me? Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Church, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this passage, Lord. We see how you were working through Paul's life, Lord, and had made him a minister of your incredible gospel, the work of Christ to enlighten people for your glory. So, Father, I pray that we would take a look at our own lives, Lord. We'd look at our church this morning. We would ask, are we being people who are producing good fruit and we're living out the new man as we submit to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Four things in this passage, y'all, that I see that we need to be producing to keep in the right fruit, keeping in with repentance. And the first one that I see is that the gospel produces humility. The gospel produces humility. Look again with me at verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul told us who he was. He was an apostle. This was kind of his role in the kingdom of God. And Paul understood that he was given this role as 
uh, a gift of the grace of God, he was not in this position as a result of his own merit. I love what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm saved. I'm empowered. I'm, I'm living out the new man. And it's not a result of my works. It is a result of God's grace in me. I love he keeps going that same verse. He says, and his grace did not uh, prove vain toward me, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul says, yes, I'm working, I'm planting churches, I'm doing all these different things, but it's not me doing them, it's the grace of God playing out in my life. Paul had some successes in ministry, and when he experienced those, he didn't look back and say, that was me. He said, that's the grace of God in me. And y'all, what's so sad is a misunderstanding of the gospel can actually produce pride in our lives. A misunderstanding of the gospel can actually produce pride in our lives. What do I mean by this? Someone might recognize some fruit in your life. Say, hey, Liam, you look like you just know so much about the Bible. Or, man, you just look like you, you love the Lord so much. And when we hear things like that, how do we respond? Do we say things like, well, well, thank you, that's the grace of God in me, or do we actually start to believe, oh, wow, I did something? And to misunderstand the gospel and the fruit of the gospel in our lives will actually produce pride in our lives. It's not really a works-based gospel, but it's like an intellect-based gospel. We understand that I couldn't do anything to earn it, but somehow I'm better now that I know all the right answers. And this is so important for us to guard against. Paul knew who he was, and he knew that he was an apostle because he had been given the grace of God. Isn't it amazing that the gospel could actually, or misunderstanding the gospel could actually produce pride in our lives? To explain this idea, um, J.D. Greer does it a, a lot better than I do. This is a book I would recommend to everyone in this room. It's called Gospel by J.D. Greer, and it's essentially an explanation of the biblical truths of the gospel. You can kind of look, this is not a book review, but just look at the table of contents. Let me kind of tell you some of the topics he talks about here. First one is why religious change doesn't work, right? How the gospel transforms us from the inside out. So many of us look to religion to change us, but religion can't do it. Religion says, don't do that. You know, stop drinking, go to church more, read your Bible more. And, and those are things that are on the outside that we're trying to change. And we need a heart transformation something only Christ could do. This next thing he talks about is the gospel is gift to righteousness, that I can't earn my salvation. I need Jesus to give me his righteousness because mine would never measure up. He keeps going, talks about extravagant generosity and urgent mission. We give and we go, not so that we will be saved, but because we have been saved. And so it should transform the way that we live out the new man. And so you read this book and you kind of think, well, man, I understand the gospel a little bit more than I did before. This is really great. And I love he has a little two chapter or excuse me, a two page chapter at the end of his book. And it's called a gospel centered warning. Let me just read this paragraph to you. It's unbelievable. I've noticed that many of us who grasp this concept of gospel-centeredness can have a tendency to be more excited about the theory of gospel-centeredness than we are about the gospel itself. At least I'm that way. I've gotten pretty good at identifying non-gospel-centered preaching and can pretty aptly point out the shortcomings of certain ministries. The point of gospel-centeredness, however, is not the shrewd ability to critique others. The point of gospel-centeredness is to adore God and worship His grace. Last sentence. It always amazes me that we can be proud because we understand the very things that should lead us to humility. 
This is our sinful nature, y'all. We could even take the truths of the gospel and use them as a source of pride to say, I'm right. I know the truth. I'm better off than somebody else. And church, this is so important for us to have this mindset to say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. And that I'm the very least of all the saints. You think about that idea that he says in in verse 8. I'm the very least of all the saints. We see Paul talk this way several times. And as he does, he's teaching us about how the kingdom of God works. How could Paul say that he is the least of all the saints? To be a saint is someone who's right before God, right? Someone who is a believer. And that person is not right before God because of their own merit, right? A person is a saint not because of their works, but because of the work of Christ. So how could I be any better than you in the church? I can't. Because the thing that gives me my status before God is not mine. It's Christ. So if you and I are in the church together, we have the same amount of righteousness. We're equally right because we're right to the degree Christ was right. Amen? 100% perfection. And so I can't be better than anybody else in the kingdom of God. We see Jesus teach this way sometimes, right? Some apostles or disciples are saying, hey, we want to sit on your right hand and your left. And Jesus tells us that his kingdom is completely backward. Jesus came to establish an upside-down kingdom. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, and he served all of us by giving his life on a cross. And this is the kind of kingdom that we live in. It's so beautiful. I've been given Christ's righteousness, and I have an introduction into his kingdom, and I'm equal with all of y'all. This is what the Bible teaches, right? There's no Jew or Greek in Christ. There's neither male nor female in Christ, neither slave nor free in Christ. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. But because Christ served me, then we adopt this humble attitude of placing ourselves below one another. Saying, hey, God's got me. He's provided everything I need. So when I interact with other people, I am freed up to serve you. And this is the way the community of God is supposed to work. Outdo yourself showing honor to one another. That's what Paul says, that I would look out for your needs, and you're looking out for my needs, and humbly we're moving forward together. And this is the best way the church can move forward in a life of humility. So beautiful that in the kingdom of God, there's no ladder to climb. There's only a cross to cling And Paul understood the beauty of the kingdom of God. Second thing I see in this passage, y'all, is that the gospel produces enlightenment. The gospel produces enlightenment. Verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Paul said, I was given grace to be a minister, and part of my ministry was to bring the gospel to light. We see this idea all throughout Scripture that truth and the work of Christ and Scripture are described as light. John chapter 1, verse 9, talking about Jesus, it says, He was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. Jesus came into a dark, sinful world, and he's shown a spotlight of truth. And so if Jesus is light, we often see in Scripture that sin and darkness and the work of Satan and his tactics are to keep us in the dark. And so if I do not choose to take off the old man and put on the new, if I choose the old man, I'm choosing to live in the dark. And so what do we have to walk through a dark world? What, what, do we, what can we take advantage of to walk through the dark world? Um, Psalm 119, 105, longest chapter of uh, 
of the Bible, and it is an exaltation of Scripture. David's talking about how beautiful the Word of God is. Very familiar passage. He says, a word, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. This is one of Satan's greatest tactics, is to keep you in the dark. He's a great deceiver, right? In the Garden of Eden, Satan's first tactic was to make Adam and Eve believe that God did not have their best interests at heart. He threw the blanket over their eyes. He said, hey, you believe these things. I'm going to put darkness before your eyes so that you can't see what God is really up to. And in this dark world, God has given us his scripture that it might guide us. I think so so often, y'all, is when we talk about our faith, we talk about how, like, yes, the world is broken, and, and it, we're in darkness now, and we're just looking forward to Christ, and, and things are just going to continue to go downhill, and we can't even really fully know God until the end, so why even bother? But, y'all, God has given us his word to know him today. This idea got me uh, thinking about a camping trip I went on as, as a little kid, maybe first or second grade. I went on a camping trip with my brother, my dad, and a bunch of other guys, and this camping trip was led by a guy named Mike Rivers. Now, many of you know Mike Rivers. He has had a wonderful ministry over the years. He's been a member of Winterfield First Baptist for years, and he takes guys uh, rock climbing, rappelling, on on his ropes course and camping and all these different things. Now, we went up to Tennessee, and we hiked up the side of a mountain to go look at an old abandoned railroad tunnel. Apparently, there was about a quarter of a mile tunnel that had been carved into the side of a mountain for a railroad, and the railroad was never built. So there was just this empty tunnel. And so he took us, and we hiked up there, and I remember standing at the edge of the cave or or looking through, and again, about a quarter mile long, and so, you know, you could just see a little beam of light way off at the end, Um, and that, you really couldn't see anything else. It was interesting being in the middle of the tunnel. You could see light on this end and this end, but where you were and was, everything was around you was just completely dark. We all walked together to the other side of the tunnel, and then we kind of pulled up some Uh, just a place to sit, and Mr. Mike did a Bible study. And he shared this verse about a word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And he told us, y'all, he said that God's word is light and that we need to hold on to that in the midst of a dark world. And then this is what he did. He said, what we're going to do is we're all going to go back to the other side of the tunnel, but you're not going to walk with people. You're just going to walk by yourself. And he said, and what I want you to do is just keep your eyes focused on the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, I was one of the youngest kids in the group, just to be fair, but I've always been a scaredy cat my whole life, okay? So most of these kids are like fifth or sixth grade, and their task is just keep your eye on that light, and, you know, we'd already walked through it. You're going to walk by yourself, and I just want you to think about in a dark world keeping your eyes fixed on Christ. And so I just watched the kids, you know, go into this tunnel. It was like we were sending them off to die, you know. And I was getting so scared about walking through this tunnel by myself. Um, and again, I don't remember this too vividly, but I remember just looking up at my dad who, who was with us. And I said, Dad, will you walk with me? Dad, will you walk with me? And of course, he was like, yeah, you know. And uh, so many kids walked through that tunnel by themselves, just fixing their eyes at the end of the story, at the end of the trip. Truth be told, I actually walked into the tunnel a little bit so they couldn't see me, and then Dad came in because I didn't want to embarrass, be embarrassed for my friends. But I walked through that tunnel, and I had my eyes on the end and at the light at the end of the tunnel, but I also was holding my father's hand. Y'all, and this is how we live our lives as followers of Christ. 
We are looking forward to a hope and enlightenment when Jesus comes back and our faith will be made sight. But church, we can hold on to the Father's hand as we walk through the tunnel. Amen. Because he has given us his spirit and he has given us his word. And for us to walk through life, just focusing on him coming back and neglecting community in a church, neglecting his word, neglecting prayer, is to say, I don't need you until the end. Church, we need him every day, every hour, Lord, I need you. And this enlightenment that we get to enjoy is just relationship with him and access to him, as we'll see in just a couple of verses. Thirdly, I see in this passage, y'all, in verse 10, is that the gospel produces community. Gospel produces community. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I know we're taking these verses one at a time, and so we might kind of lose the flow of what Paul's saying here. He's saying he was given grace to be a minister, to preach to the Gentiles and to enlighten them so that the light bulb might turn on in their life so that the church might show something to the world. And how does he describe this? He says that the church would display the manifold wisdom of God. It's not a word you hear maybe every day, manifold, right? That God's wisdom is diverse and it's multifaceted and it's, it's comprehensive. It, it's got several different parts to it. It's interesting, this word in the Greek is the same word in the Hebrew language that was used in Genesis to describe Joseph's coat. You guys know this story, right? Jacob had 12 sons which later became the names of the tribes of Israel. But his favorite son was a guy named Joseph. And because Jacob loved Joseph so much, he gave him a coat of many colors or a manifold colored coat. And what made this coat such an incredible gift? It, wasn't, it was an incredible gift because it wasn't just a drab gray or a drab brown, right? It was manifold. It was multifaceted. It was diverse. It was beautiful. It had all these different colors. And so it was, um, it was different. It was unique. And it was valuable because of its diversity. And I think it's so incredible that in verse 10, Paul describing God's wisdom and the, display, the displaying of God's wisdom would be through a multicolored and diverse church that a gospel of all nations would reach the church and we would see how God, on so many different levels, his wisdom of, and his power of preserving the church might be displayed to the world. Y'all, it's kind of like we're God's trophy. That Jesus rose from the grave and he redeemed the church and then he does a victory lap and says, look at how wise I am. Look at how powerful I am. I have redeemed the church. And I was thinking about, you know, guys, we're, we're thinking about the gospel being for all nations, and we even talk about the unreached people group. We want those people, the Tujia people, to come to know Christ because we want to add another thread to the church. Amen? We want to see the multifaceted wisdom of God being preserved and displayed to the church. And the church is the witness that God is in control, that he is powerful, and he is um, able to redeem all people. Verse 10, it says that he would display this wisdom through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Well, turn with me really quickly to Ephesians 6, verse 12, and we will see who these people are. 
Ephesians 6, 12, Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness excuse me, in the heavenly places. So who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Satan, and it's the demons that that Jesus would wear this coat. He would receive his bride, the church, and he would show to Satan saying, you thought you could steal these people from me? You thought you could pluck them out of my hand? I can redeem them, and I will show my wisdom through the preservation of the church. And that's a beautiful, comforting truth that I will be preserved on the basis of God's character. It's not up to my work. It's up to his. This is why Jesus said to Peter, Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because if the church was not preserved, then the character of Christ would suffer an embarrassment. And y'all, that just is not going to happen. He has got us secure in him because his wisdom is going to be displayed through the redemption of the church. We see the production, the gospel produces this wonderful, diverse community um, that will be displayed and shown to all those who stand against God. Fourth thing I see in this passage, y'all, in verse 12 and 13, is that the gospel produces confident access to the Father. The gospel produces confident access to the Father, 11 and 12, or excuse me, 11 through 13. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. I couldn't help but write this message thinking about my daughter. I mean, it's hard not to think about that when you're preparing for this message with the week Olivia and I went through. And it was emotional. And it was wonderful. And I cannot imagine going through the week we just went through without confident access to God. I can't imagine. I cried out to God in times of joy this week. I cried out to God in times of stress and fear And I know that he heard me because I have access to the Father. This week made me feel very, very helpless. (laughs) When your wife's in labor, you feel helpless. I don't know how to help her. And then you hold a little girl, (laughs) and you feel very, very helpless. Because I can sure, I may be able to provide for some of her things physically, y'all, but I cannot provide for her spiritually. And I've thought this week so many times, I'm so glad that Yahweh is Olivia's shepherd and that Yahweh is Reese's shepherd, not me. He's the one who provides for them. He's the one who can do for them what I can't do for them. And what has Christ done for them that I could never do? He's, prov- he's provided confident access to the Father. He's made that available for them as well. And I could never do that. If you're not a believer, I want to tell you how you can have confident access before God. You see, we believe that our God is creator. He is so holy and in him there is no sin. And that's bad news for us because there's sin in me. I was born into my sin. Even my beautiful daughter, who I think is perfect, I know she was born into 
sin. And God cannot be with sin because it would uh, contradict his character. He can't just sweep our sin under the rug. So we are actually born not with access to God, but we're born disconnected from a holy God. God's not looking for us to have a life where more good things outweigh the bad things. That's not how it works with God's character. He is looking for complete and total perfection. And I cannot be perfect on my own power. I can't be perfect for anybody else. But God sent Jesus. This is what Ephesians 2, 4 says. We quote John three sixteen all the time. The Father sent the Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus coming to earth lived a perfect life. He was totally obedient. Can you imagine? Every opportunity he had to sin, he stood firm. Every time he was tempted, he ran to the Father instead of running to things that would never satisfy. And he did not deserve to die because he was perfect. And yet he did die. He was crucified, and the scriptures teach that the wrath of God was poured out on him, not because of his work and his life and his sin, but because of mine. He didn't die his death. He died mine, and he died yours, and he died the death of the whole world. Then he rose again, and when he rose, he showed us, he proved to us that he was who he said he was, and he proved to us that he had defeated death. In this passage right here, y'all, we're told this was in accordance with the eternal purpose. What was that eternal purpose? It was the gospel, right? Before the world began, God the Father had predestined us for adoption to say, I'm going to save them, right? Sin didn't take God by surprise, and the gospel plan was already there. It was a purpose that was eternal. It was carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, and by having faith in him, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, I know what I've done, and I don't deserve your grace, but Lord, I accept the payment that you have given me on the cross. I believe and I trust in you in faith, Lord. We can have confident and bold access before the Father. And I just ask you, do you have that? How, how was your week? Did you, talk, did you talk to the Father? Did you hear from him as you studied his word? Church, if we're not doing this We're walking through a tunnel without our Father's hand, and there's not a light at the end of the tunnel either. Church, we want you to have confident access to the Father. Oh, please, I beg you, be reconciled to him today. Now, if you're a believer, I want to talk about this passage just for a second. He says, in Christ, we have humble and confident access, or excuse me, bold and confident access through faith in him. And so many of us, maybe you've been a Christian for several years, and you don't think your relationship with God is not, not marked by boldness and confidence. You actually fear God. You have a good week, and you think, okay, now I can go have some, enjoy some access before the Father because I read my Bible, and I went to church, and I did all the stuff. Um, but then some weeks, you have a really rough week, and you think, oh, well, I don't feel confident to stand before God and to enjoy access to him. In that point, y'all, you're believing a works-based gospel. You're believing that God loves you based on something you've done. And this is not the gospel. And for me to say, I'm scared to stand before God is not humility, it's doubt of the sacrifice of Christ. I stand before him and I know that he will accept me because he accepted his son and his son has offered us eternal life. It's beautiful. All these things that Paul has said in these 12 verses. And then in verse 13, he says, therefore, 
When you see a therefore, it's like, okay, we've talked about all this stuff. Here's the application. And he commands them to do something. He asks them to do something. I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul says, we know the power of the gospel. We've seen the grace of God. You've seen how it's changed my life and how it changed my life for your benefit. And this is the incredible eternal purpose of God. We have access to him. And then he ties the big story of the gospel to his circumstances. And he says, I know I'm in prison, but don't lose heart. And church, what we see here is that these incredible truths should change how we see any situation. He says, don't lose heart. What would be the opposite of losing heart? It would be to persevere, right? To stand firm and to know that no matter what happens in our lives, we don't have to be discouraged because of the truths of the gospel. I think of John 16, verse 33, where Jesus tells the disciples the day before he's crucified, he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. The next day, it didn't look like Jesus had overcame the world, did it? It looked like the world had overcome him. But he knew the power of God. He knew that he was being obedient. And he could say, even before it happened, I have overcome the world. Y'all, these eternal truths of the gospel are the anchor of our soul in every circumstance. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come up. Um, we're going to sing one last song um, before we're dismissed. And Again, this is just, I don't get any kickbacks from this book, but once again, I, I encourage you to grab a copy of this book, um, Gospel by J.D. Greer. He has four sentences in his book that he goes through, and he says these are four truths that we need to have as an anchor for our lives in any situation, right? We might feel tempted um, to, to doubt God, or we might think God doesn't love me today because um, I did something wrong, or, or God hasn't, doesn't have enough for me to have joy. We believe all these different things, and he just gives us a few gospel truths that we need to anchor our lives in. And so I just want us to reflect on these a little bit, and then we're going to sing and respond and worship to our God who's done all the work. Let me read these four little sentences. In Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I've done that makes you love me less. It's good. I can't do anything to make God love me more than he loves me right now. And there's nothing I can do to stop that love. Second one, your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. There's one thing I need to be a joyful person. It's not a certain amount of money. It's not a certain amount of health. It is access to the Father. He's all I need for everlasting joy. Third one, this is how our relationships with others should transform. As you have been to me, so I will be to other people. And then finally, as I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. I love that one. That I know God is powerful. How do I know that? Because of what he did on the cross and through the resurrection doesn't matter what happens to me tomorrow. If he shows up, if I see a miracle, doesn't matter. He's not powerful based on what happens to me today because my life's going to be a roller coaster, and that's fine. I have an anchor, and I know he's powerful because of what he did on the cross. The power of the gospel, y'all, should change every part of us, producing a right standing with God, producing our community, producing enlightenment. This is what we have to hold on to in every single circumstance. Church. We're going to sing, I'll come to the altar. And the bridge of this song, I love it. It just says, oh, what a savior. Isn't he wonderful?
So I ask you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on what he's done for you, not last week, but through the power of the cross. And let's sing together, oh, what a Savior. Will you stand and let's sing?